welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the Journal of the History of Ideas blog. I'm Dishak Arnadjani. I'm joined today by Ian Merkel, Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at the Free University in Berlin, to talk about his book, Terms of Exchange, Brazilian Intellectuals and the French Social Sciences, out in 2022 from the University of Chicago Press. How did you come to this project in the first place? I came to this project wanting to write an intellectual history of Sao Paulo, uh, the city and its culture, uh, and thinking about it as this kind of node of intellectual exchange and transfer. Um, And I knew that somehow when I started this project, I would connect it to my previous training in French history and the the history of the French empire. I sort of switched in graduate school midway towards uh, the history of Brazil and Latin America, but I still had this uh, previous training. And I kind of fortuitously came upon this curious phenomenon, which is the more that I read, uh, the more that I found that the social sciences in Brazil were and continue to be influenced by the French. Um, So from a genealogical perspective, kind of going back, uh, this this dates at least to the 1930s when the so-called French missions uh, were went to teach uh, in Brazilian universities. Um, And it also just so happened um, that some of the most prominent French social scientists of the 20th century spent a lot of formative years in Brazil, a subject which um, I found treated kind of anecdotally uh, in a lot of different sources, but that I felt needed um, systematic treatment. And and that's one of the things that I ended up doing. Um, And so I I started to visit private archives of major Brazilian thinkers and and these French professors who spent their formative years in Brazil, Claude Lévi-Strauss, Fernand Brodel, and, and others, Uh, And this is the research that ultimately led to the dissertation and and now this book. What changes about the history of social science when we take this story into account? Yeah, so uh, when I came into graduate school, and this is still now the case, um, there's a lot of talk about decentering and and decolonizing Western historical narratives. Um, So I think decolonial approaches were not really yet on the agenda. Um, But in just about every uh, field, long-held understandings of of something happening first in Europe uh, or in the United States and and only following later elsewhere, uh, these narratives were being brought into question. Um, And the social sciences, um, however, took a little bit longer uh, for for this kind of approach, uh, this kind of examination to happen. Uh, I think at least in part um, because in in English, the English language, the history of the social sciences is a relatively new field. Um, This is not the case elsewhere, but in English it is. Um, And so what I see uh, in in this light is that different from uh, other areas, politics, arts, etc., the the fact of inequality um, structured uh, this um, dissemination and institutionalization of the the social sciences. Because if arts or in politics or or other areas 
Um, a lot of these phenomenon are happening simultaneously across the globe. Uh, the social sciences, like the scientists, like the sciences themselves, require a certain amount of infrastructure, right? You need to have universities, departments, funding agencies, all of these kinds of things um, before the social sciences can really take off. Um, and so because of this, it's largely true. Uh, that the institutionalization of the social sciences takes place earlier in places uh, like Germany, France, England, the United States before uh, they do in the global south or, or even in Eastern Europe for that matter. Um, so this is, this is kind of the basis of the story, one of inequality, uh, where French scholars were brought to found the University of Sao Paulo, Brazil's first university, and to teach there. Um, but as I show, Brazilians were there at every step of the way. Uh, they were colleagues, uh, they were friends, they were students, they uh, at, at some times were the, the kind of mentors of, of these uh, Frenchmen as they developed uh, their, their respective disciplines, history, geography, anthropology, sociology, etc. So uh, some of the names uh, and, and figures that are that feature prominently in this book are, are people like Mario Giandragi, Cal Prado Jr., Gilberto Freire, uh, and, and Florestan Fernandes. And I show um, uh, how they influenced not just um, the, the thinking of these French scholars, but also how research was conducted, right? Uh, so we see this both in terms of kind of theoretical approaches and also uh, more practical methodological approaches to things like social structure, uh, historical temporality, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think that this is important uh, for a variety of reasons, but particularly in the American Academy, um, because we far too seldom consider the methodological importance of non-European or non-American uh, authors. So I think every uh, area specialist uh, will know of certain thinkers of their respective uh, part of the world, right, that they might incorporate, but I think it's it's hard to find, especially when we're talking about, you know, methodology of uh, anthropology or sociology or even history to find, um, you know, non-European or non-North American thinkers. And, and so one of the things that I really wanted to do here is to make Brazilians legible outside of Brazil, beyond the place uh, that they study, right? And you're making, I think, a really important point as well, um, as, you, as you just mentioned about the infrastructure and institutions um, that are tied into and, and fundamental to the development of something like social science or really any academic discipline. Um, and so, you know, you you really focus this history in many ways on Sao Paulo. How, how, to what extent is this um, an institutional history really of the Brazilian university? And if if it is to some extent an institutional history, how in the writing of this did you tie that into something like um, the kind of self-consciously intellectual history? Where do those things meet for you in this book? Yeah, thanks for for bringing this up, Disha. Um, so it is very much an intellectual, uh, an, in, an institutional history of the Brazilian university, but also kind of para-university organizations. So some of these include things like the Association for Brazilian Geographers, uh, but also something that's called the Society for Ethnography and Folklore. 
uh, run by Mario Giandragi and in, in which the Levi-Strauss couple, Claude but Dina, would uh, kind of help to, to launch this uh, institution. Um, and I think it's very important for us as intellectual historians to understand these infrastructures, right? The, the kind of preconditions, uh, the conditions of possibility uh, that allow ideas to develop and to take root, um, as well as how things like uh, both material and symbolic capital operate in different institutional and, and social contexts. Uh, so the first thing I should say here, right, is that is that the book is deeply rooted in how Brazilians have dealt with the history of their universities, the University of Sao Paulo in particular, uh, and how in uh, their respective disciplines uh, became institutionalized in this context. Uh, and I think this is essential. This is the kind of bedrock for understanding the ideas that were generated there, whether in the classroom or outside of it. Um, and but. At the same time, because this is a, a book that deals with intellectuals and their ideas, you know, I I did want to um, give this um, kind of autonomous realm of thought uh, its own um, uh, well uh, space, right? And so, in in terms of the ideas in the book, you'll see things like uh, Brazilian modernism, uh, the way that Brazilians in this period of the 1930s and 60s were were thinking about race and culture, particularly uh, indigenous and, and Afro-Brazilian, uh, and also the research that was going on in the what, what we might now call political economy uh, and the precursors to dependency theory. And so when you were after both, you know, the contours of this institutional space, but also these ideas that, you know, as, as you said uh, a few moments ago, um, really are not taken up methodologically outside of their context as, as much as they should be. Um, I'm really wondering then how you kind of go into an archive with maybe these being your, your imperatives. Can you tell us a bit um, again, especially for our listeners who maybe are starting off on a, on a research project, what your research practice was was like in these archives and um, how a person can go about building an account of the shared intellectual life when part of your story is about how it was really not so legible unless you were looking for it. Yeah, so I think uh, for those of you interested in working on the history of ideas or intellectual history, and this is uh, the space in which we're uh, talking right now, um, what I would encourage people to do is, is to kind of take a dialectical approach between text and context to, you know, find authors uh, that you find interesting, read them, be aware of them, and also try to understand uh, the inst institutions through which they passed, the people with whom they corresponded, uh, and to kind of build out this network uh, from the single individual into a, a much wider uh, context. Um, a context which not only um, is the kind of backdrop to uh, their work, but actually fundamental for informing it. Um, and so I should say that I maybe start by saying here that um, I'm, I'm among the most archival of intellectual historians that, that I've met. Um, and so um you know there there is of course there and there are very there's very good scholarship among intellectual historians or historians of ideas that mostly work with pre-existing literature uh on great thinkers of which there's a great deal 
Um, and uh, but I think because I was trained by social historians, my approach is is a little bit different. So I start with the infrastructure and move to the ideas uh, rather than the other way around. And again, I'm I'm interested in knowing you know who is exchanging with whom and why, as well as what was exchanged. So. To, to be kind of nitty gritty about this, how does this work? How does one go about doing archival work with this in mind? So kind of selecting a, a group of individuals, however loosely defined, identifying them, uh, seeing if they have uh, private archives or other institutional archives with which you can work. Uh, and then, you know, go into the field, begin to conduct research into them, conduct form, informal interviews sometimes with, with people who may have known them uh, or who may know uh, different sources uh, about um, them. Um, locate these archives, uh, again, of institutions through which they passed, maybe that uh, if they're professors, maybe that they taught at, if they're artists, maybe uh, if there's some kind of uh, artistic community with an archive or uh, museums, etc. Um, kind of try to understand as many of the, the possible contacts that these people uh, may have had. And so this is something that I think is very important for people to remember. They might think, well, the person on whom I want to work does not have an archive or that archive is not uh, available for consultation. Sometimes you also have to get the rights of the um, uh, children or, you know, uh, to uh, conduct this archival work, which I did, but even if you can, you can think about who, who is this person corresponding with and to, to find that archive, right? Uh, and, and oftentimes you need to do uh, both of these to get the both letters sent uh, and, and letters received, right? Uh, and so this is part of it. And I think as you start to enter into this world um, of different archives, you start to see uh, who mattered and who didn't, right? And so I think sometimes we have ideas, uh, and this is what happens maybe if we remain purely at a kind of textual level uh, of the importance of a certain thinker and the development of someone else's work. Um, when you go into an archive and you find that uh, this person um, corresponded, you know, some 60 letters, uh, with someone, I think, you know, we, we start to see that this is an important connection that that maybe needs exploration. Um, and, and also what happens is that once you enter into this world, different kinds of connections and different kinds of archives become uh, legible and, and visible to you, right? Uh, and so with all of this in mind, you know, this kind of uh, snowballing effect of, of archives uh, communicating with each other, uh, you then uh, either prior to this or, or meanwhile start to develop uh, important themes or sub-themes uh, that you want to work through. Uh, so I was interested in the exchanges between Brazilian and French thinkers. So oftentimes in French archives, I was looking for Brazilian names. Uh, and, and in Brazilian archives uh, for French names, right? And so we start to see uh, this kind of coming together around the, the questions that you ask, um, but ultimately also allowing the um, archive itself to uh, inform your practice. And so just to, to name some of the archives that I used in this, 
Uh, again, the, the private archives, personal archives of Lavistros and, and Brodel, uh, as well as uh, Gilberto Freri, Mario Giandragi, Cal Prado Jr., as well as institutional archives, um, the University of Sao Paulo's archives, the Association of Brazilian Geographers, the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, and, and what ultimately, you know, uh, we see is, a, is a, or at least I kind of offer through this is, is a sort of um, historical anthropology of intellectual life and the connections between these people. Could you tell us a little about the role of personal relationships in the story that you're telling? Because the way that you chart the importance of these relationships to the development of social science in Brazil and, and between Brazil and France really reminded me of what, for instance, Lila Gandhi has called affective communities. Could you say more about the role of these communities in your book? Yeah, um, I mean, the first thing, there, there's just so many of these relationships that um, kind of, uh, that, that we can see in the book. Um, it, one uh, that that's interesting that other people have worked on is this kind of triangle between uh, Claude and Dina Levi-Strauss and, and Mario Giandragi, uh, and the affective there is, is quite clear um, in that, um, you know, some have... Uh, surmised or that that Dina actually had a, a romantic relationship with Mario there's there's all of these kind of elements as well but I think um more than this what I um see is th this kind of mundane level of of intellectual like literally you know who is uh kind of going to events with whom uh there's a point where um uh Claude Lévi-Strauss is is actually corresponding with um his uh, friends in Sao Paulo, uh, he's in the field, uh, but about the sweater that he borrowed from one of them. So, I mean, some of this might seem for, for people who are interested in this kind of highbrow intellectual history um, might find this a little bit irritating. But I, I think that what I, what I really want to point to is that these are very much uh, human relationships. Um, and so uh, I think that we, we need to take these relationships into consideration, um, particularly when, when thinking about um, international circulation uh, and the, the the production of knowledge for sure, but but especially this this kind of circulation, uh, who is invited where and why uh, and and what kind of affect is is involved in this. So the part of this um, we we see in these relationships on the ground in Brazil, but another element of this, and this uh, comes back to the question of of archives and and what's unexpected there. Um, is when I started to do this archival work in in France, really uh, with the regard, you know, my my perspective looking onto Sao Paulo from there. Uh, what I found is that this group of French scholars who who went to Brazil in the 1930s, when they came back to Paris in the 1940s and 50s, when they kind of assumed their first. Uh, professorships in, in Paris and started to build the social sciences there, that they were each other's most important collaborators, right? Brodel and Lévi-Strauss have some 60 letters exchanged together, as well as with other uh, two uh, central uh, figures in this book, Roger Bastide and Pierre Montbeg, that I haven't spoken about. Um, and they use, uh, not only do they have this collective experience of having uh, been in Sao Paulo and in Brazil in the 1930s, uh, a period of 
extended separation from their country of an unfavorable job market um, and kind of uh, precarity uh, of war, of geographic and social mobility, that kind of all of these things they bring back with them. Uh, and, and these relationships uh, remain uh, you know, kind of some of their most important throughout their professional life, right? And so I think it's, um, you know, there's people, uh, Raymond Williams has some uh, excellent work on the Bloomsbury group uh, and some of the, uh, you know, it's both a, a sociology of this group, um, but also um, attentive to these questions of, of affect, I think, uh, despite, uh, well, maybe in addition to uh, the, the Marxist uh, perspective that he offers, right? And I think that um, combining these kind of aspects, right, a kind of social perspective on intellectual life, um, but also one that um, considers questions of affect is, is quite important. And just to um, kind of uh, tie into my current work, I'm, I'm writing an article right now on uh, Laurette Sejourné, uh, Italian-born, French, uh, nationalized uh, uh, intellectual who, who um, anti-fascist who ends up in Mexico in the 1940s, uh, along with the surrealist painter uh, Leonora Carrington and their relationship, right, both through correspondence, but also through uh, the intellectual work uh, collaboration that it generated. You're also really careful in the book to frame the transformations taking place at the university in between French and Brazilian social science in the context of the massive political shifts of the 1930s. Could you say a little bit more about the role of fascism and the war and, and the 1930s more broadly in, in the story that you're telling? So um, basically the, the book deals with this period between the 1930s and, and the mid 1960s. Um, and during this uh, period, both Brazil and France experienced the, the economic crisis of the 1930s, both uh, uh, experienced fascist or, or fascist-inspired politics in the 1940s. Um, France, uh, of course, uh, under, uh, well, Nazi occupation and, and Vichy, uh, and Brazil under Getulio Vargas, who's in power from 1930 through 1945, before becoming democratically elected again in, in 1951. Uh, and so even if in this later incarnation, Vargas takes a left turn and becomes a kind of father of the poor, uh, he is a, a corporatist, uh, if not uh, a fascist, um, and more often than not interested in um, co-opting workers rather than really, um, you know, representing their, their interests. Vargas, too, is, is neutral through much of World War II, uh, but ultimately comes to support the Allied cause, um, although, in my view, more because of U.S. material support, the U.S. actually, you know, uh, creates a steel town uh, in Rio de Janeiro uh, for the Brazilians, offers different kinds of material incentives for entering into the war. But these are the kind of reasons for the entry into war rather than a kind of anti-fascist ideology. Um, so, this is the broad uh, context, but what does it mean for the people in the book? Um, so by the by the time that the war broke out, uh, many of the French scholars who had gone to Brazil in the 30s were back in France, um, but their institutions 
had been ransacked. For example, the Musée de l'Homme. Uh, Jews, of course, were fired. Uh, Marcel Mauss and, and Marc Bloch uh, from the previous generation, uh, who are particularly important uh, in this story, uh, were removed from their positions. Uh, and uh, the young professors were, were tested in their own ways too. So Bradel uh, was a military officer uh, and uh, held in prison camps in Germany. Levi-Strauss ultimately uh, went to New York on the same boat as the Surrealists and, and also the German novelist Anna Sigers. And for any of the, you who are watching uh, the Netflix series right now, Transatlantic, uh, this is the, the last boat with Andre Breton and everyone. This is the boat that he's on. Uh, for those who stayed in Brazil, they had a kind of difficult situation of having to be neutral, uh, of not as foreigners, um, it, to, to not uh, engage in openly political activities, right? Um, but they managed to contribute to the resistance in their own way, nonetheless. Um, but I think what, what I kind of uh, point to in a sort of structural sense and, and in desettling, unsettling these narratives of the emergence of the social sciences uh, is to think about per, perhaps France had a, uh, a step ahead in the 1930s over Brazil in the, the institutionalization of the social sciences, uh, but this is interrupted by fascism and the war. You know, institutions are destroyed, uh, except in the kind of racist pseudosciences, uh, you know, uh, and, and meanwhile in Brazil, um, they're allowed to continue to develop, right? There continues to be uh, funding for the social sciences, uh, continues to be this kind of autonomous space uh, for research, which is difficult to, to find um, elsewhere, particularly in Europe during this period. Uh, so despite the censorship in Brazil, um, this, the social sciences have this uh, important home. Uh, meanwhile, in Brazil, for Brazilian intellectuals, I think we see something in the 1930s and 40s, which is sort of similar to the early fascist period in Italy, where a lot of left-wing, uh, left-leaning intellectuals actually came to work for the state. So Mario Giandraggi, for example, heads up this uh, institution for historical patrimony, kind of uh, looking at uh, architecture and non-material heritage, immaterial heritage, uh, continuing the, in, in a different way the work that he was doing in Sao Paulo. But radicals like Carl Prado Jr., he was a communist, were imprisoned, right? So we have a kind of wide uh, uh, variety of, of experiences there. Um, in terms of colonization and decolonization, uh, it's important to remember uh, that France was a colonial uh, power during this period. Uh, and Brazil, one of the things that I tried to do in the book is, is also to consider the, the Brazilian nation state as imperial, right? As, as kind of uh, mirroring what's going on in the European empires, even if it's not officially an empire. Uh, so France in the 30s onward is a kind of reformist empire. Uh, and Brazil uh, was expanding rapidly into its interior, uh, displacing indigenous people, bringing new populations under the tutelage of the nation state. Um, and this is very important for uh, the context, but also formative context for the disciplines that I talk about, anthropology, geography, uh, even sociology uh, were closely and tightly knit uh, with these ongoing processes of, of colonization. Um, 
so most of the people in the book were kind of critics of uh, the excesses of empire. Uh, they were in their own way um, anti-racists, at least in the time that they were working. Uh, but as I show, uh, they were also highly dependent on kind of colonial institutions. Uh, and so, uh, for example, there's Roger Bastide, who in some ways is one of the most admirable people, uh, or at least I hope to present him as such in the book. Uh, he came to work on Afro-descended populations and, and religions in Brazil, connecting them uh, to uh, Africa, working with local communities, candomblé communities in particular in Salvador. Um, so he also co-authored a, a, a very important fundamental book uh, with Florestan Fernandes, which points to racial discrimination in Sao Paulo. It's called Whites and Blacks in, in Sao Paulo. Uh, and of all of the intellectuals in the book, he's one of those most sympathetic to African emancipation, to African culture, you know, to, uh, to all of these kinds of themes. Um, but even still, Bastide worked for the French state, uh, the French colonial state. So in the 1950s, his research brought him to Senegal, to IFAN, uh, the Institut Francais pour l'Afrique Noire. Uh, and Senegal, of course, is still part of the French Empire. Brodel uh, had a past in Algeria. Um, actually, his wife was a, was a pied noir. And the story that I'm told uh, is that Brodel continued to live a kind of lavish lifestyle uh, in Paris through uh, the 1950s because he received a kind of subsidy from his father-in-law in Algeria, right? And so very much anti-Algerian, uh, you know, uh, decolonization. Uh, and so um, it's, this is an important point that I make in the book, uh, and it also helps to explain why some of these intellectuals, despite being progressive in, in other ways, uh, were hesitant to accept a kind of radical anti-colonial demands. Uh, and it's this, in this context, there's a whole chapter of this uh, in the book, I won't uh, kind of bore you with it here, but of um, the, the French reception of Gilberto Freire. And so Freire, who is Brazilian, makes the case that Portugal had a particularly humane uh, colonial uh, enterprise, as well as, you know, slavery also looked different uh, in uh, Brazil and in the Portuguese empire than it did uh, among the Anglo-Saxons in particular with their one-drop rule. Uh, and so there is this kind of utopian idea uh, of a more just, uh, more racially mixed uh, imperial formation uh, that might be a way out of uh, you know, radical demands of decolonization. And, and so this is all, um, you know, again, not just the backdrop, but the formative context for some of the ideas in the book. That's really helpful, I think, especially because, um, as you say, it really affects the periodization of the development, a lot of these ideas, because, um, people being imprisoned or people um, working for a new arm of the state. I mean, these things are kind of, as you as you write, you know, really important markers for how and why ideas might um, change or, or appear differently. Um, and, and your story, as you said, really takes us through the 60s. And so I wanted to ask about the particularly Brazilian political context of, of the 1964 coup and how that figures in your story. Um, could you tell us more about the, how, what role that plays? 
Yeah, so the 1964 coup has a has a profound impact on on Brazilian social science. Um, the U.S. supported the military coup, uh, and two years after the coup uh, in 1966, there are agreements between the U U.S. aid uh, and the Ministry of Education and Culture in Brazil, which reformulate the Brazilian university system. They overhaul the educational system, uh, and so. Uh, among the changes that are brought about are kind of abolition of the old cathedra system. This is the old kind of professorial uh, system, uh, similar in some ways to the German system now, <laughs> um, and the emergence of departments. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that I do in the book is to make claims about the importance of interdisciplinarity in Brazil, uh, in Brazilian universities in the period between the 1930s and, and 60s. Um, and this was in part because departments didn't exist. Um, and so uh, this, this, is, this earlier context uh, that allowed for a kind of total social science, interdisciplinary social science starts to change pretty quickly after 1966. Um, and simultaneously, we see a crackdown by the military uh, on uh, leftist and, and left-leaning uh, intellectuals. Um, so some are in prison, others sent into exile. Uh, Florestan Fernandes, who is, um, figures in the book and is the University of Sao Paulo's uh, probably most important sociologist, uh, he went to Canada. Fernando Henrique Cardoso, who had become one of the founders of dependency theory, uh, goes to Santiago de Chile, de Chile uh, where he worked at CEPAL, the, the UN's Economic Commission for Latin America uh, and the Caribbean. And I'd point to Margarita Fajardo's new book if you're interested in knowing more about that. Um, and so even if um, many of these uh, thinkers came back to Brazil, uh, there was um, a, a certain kind of discontinuity, particularly in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, and so it's not as if this kind of French-Brazilian uh, cooperation evaporated or was completely destroyed. These things uh, take a long time uh, to change. Um, but, but definitely the coup reconfigures the dynamic between Brazilian universities and the outside world, and it kind of re reorients them towards the United States. To what extent were you thinking about the role of social science in these conversations today? Um, did you speak with social scientists while you were putting together the project, when you were thinking about which figures to focus on? Kind of what's that relationship between this history of a practice and, and the practice itself for you? Okay, so I mean, the first thing that I should probably say here is that my audience uh, beyond the Anglophone world is much of it's in Latin America and in Europe. And I think in both of these places, the, the divide between the kind of historical thinking about the social sciences and, uh, and present, you know, empirical work uh, is not quite as stark uh, as it is in, in the United States. Uh, and so um, I think my my story in some ways actually it, it tells us um, how not so much uh, how we got there to the stark divide in the Anglo context, but why this was not the case uh, in uh, France and, and Brazil. Um, and so uh, I should say that in terms of these these conversations with or imaginings of 
the practice in the Anglo-American sphere. I, I haven't spoken with that many social scientists about this book, um, but what I would say is the following. Um, I, I hope that social scientists who read the book stop to think twice about where their theoretical models and, and methodology come from uh, and how they might go about incorporating new voices into their canon. So my goal is not to kind of uh, re-ignite uh, a structuralist or an all moment. That's not really the idea, but rather to historicize this. Um, and to think about from this particular uh, case, uh, how we might go about kind of democratizing or diversifying our canons more broadly. So unfortunately in the US at least, and, and this of course depends on the field, social scientists will primarily cite scholars from the global north, even when they work on the global south. Um, and the spaces that they work on uh, often, more often than not, provide kind of raw data, but not theory. Um, and I think this is highly problematic for both political reasons, but also because as historians, we see that it's untrue. This is not how things actually looked. And Latin America in particular played a significant role in the development of theory. I think it needs to be taken more seriously as a source of knowledge in the social sciences. Uh, and I see, for example, you hosted um, Eleni Zeleke, Ethiopia and Theory. And uh, so I, I, you know, this is the, the kind of work that I think we need in a lot of places uh, and that I hope starts to, um, you know, uh, well, uh, affect the way that social scientists in the present think about the corpus that they construct. Knowing that you were in conversation with these different communities, with social scientists, with uh, Brazilian academics, with French academics, um, writing the, the dissertation and, and now the book in English, um, what was it like turning the, the initial project into the, the finished book? Yeah, so I, I kind of see two questions here. One is the is the question of audience, which uh, I think uh, as we move forward in time, uh, certainly it's something to think about that, that I didn't think about in graduate school, but that would have been uh, good to think about who is the audience for this. But so I think actually a, a lot of the work uh, that one does in transforming a dissertation into a book is really thinking about that and revising uh, accordingly, uh, which I, which I've done. Um, but uh, I I did write this as a book. Um, unfortunately, I I had a lot of good close readers on my committee um, that they gave really good feedback, and I, and I would just encourage those of you who are in graduate school to really you know run by every single chapter by as many of the people on your committee as possible, uh, get their feedback because that kind of opportunity doesn't repeat itself uh, afterwards. Um, but but even still uh, having had uh, all of this, uh, you know, help and, and editing support and all of these kinds of things, uh, even if this dissertation was close to a book, it, it's still a long process. So the, uh, the proposal got rejected a couple of places. Um, 
I ended up cutting a chapter uh, and then thinking about um, possibilities for series to publish this in. This is um, something that might be useful for those in this world of Journal of the History of Ideas. There are a couple um, series that I considered. So the book is ultimately in uh, Darren McMahon's uh, series with Chicago, The Life of Ideas. Uh, there's also a series uh, at uh, the University of Pennsylvania Press, uh, The Intellectual History of the Modern Age. Um, and so anyway, I ended up working uh, with Chicago and there's that whole revision process as well. Um, but yeah. Could you tell us more about how you were thinking through the process of translating the French and Brazilian contexts, really long histories for the development of social science into an English language book project? So thanks for this question. I, I have to say that I, I don't quite know how to answer this except for um, having a kind of sensibility uh, towards this, uh, this question, trying to write in as kind of directly, uh, simply, not, not simply in a kind of uh, dumbed down way, but in, in a way that uh, makes it so that uh, at least the the first encounters that we have with these uh, unfamiliar names and people uh, are provided, uh, you know, sufficient context, right? Uh, sufficient description, and how doing this in a way that doesn't overload the reader with uh, too much. Uh, uh, description and not enough analysis is, of course, uh, a, a difficult thing to do. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that I have the answer. I don't know what your experience was like uh, reading the book. But, but I think that we do need to do this kind of work uh, in any case uh, before delving into um, the, the kind of difficult uh, textual analysis that intellectual historians are, are very good at doing, right? Um, and this is not only about, uh, because this is Brazil and it's unfamiliar to students, but I think also, uh, you know, a lot of people who work in kind of more philosophical approaches, for example, uh, that uh, much of what's being discussed, I'm just thinking, you know, of someone like Theodore Adorno, uh, American popular culture or something, this shouldn't be uh, all that uh, difficult uh, to approach, but I think unless it is written in such a way that um, in, is intentionally trying to make people understand rather than to confuse, uh, this is part of the politics also of, of writing. And so on the flip side, if <clears throat> in writing this book for an American university press and, and writing it in English, you knew that you were communicating um, Brazilian and French social thought for a primarily Anglophone audience. The flip side of that, could you tell us a little bit about how um, scholars in Brazil have been thinking through uh, the story that you're, you're telling and how people, um, for instance, in Sao Paulo, who are obviously currently um, working at the university that is the center of your book, you know, having spent time there, having talked with um, researchers in Brazil, how they think through um, the development of their own uh, discipline and, and their own university? Yeah, thanks, Tisha. And this is, uh, I'm glad you bring this up because this is uh, essential for uh, the, the work that I've done um, in that 
Um, the Brazilians, I mean, if we, from a genealogical approach, basically two or three generations out, uh, the, this story uh, is uh, the, the kind of the, 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 the many of the, the many of the kind of uh, important figures in Brazilian intellectual life today uh, are kind of intellectual grandchildren of, of the story on both sides. And so um, they have thought about um, the way that this history is important for their own disciplines. Um, and so we have anthropologists who have interrogated what this means for anthropology, geographers uh, for geography, historians for uh, for their discipline. Uh, and one of the things that I was able to do, because there was already so such a significant corpus in Portuguese on these subjects, um, is to look at the, con the, the connections across all of these disciplines and to think kind of holistically about um, how this was such an interesting moment of, um, of exchange between France and Brazil, but also uh, across the disciplines uh, at this newly founded university. Um, and so I want uh, to showcase the work of uh, a lot of these Brazilian thinkers, but also to, to take uh, this different perspective uh, and to think about not what this means uh, just locally, but also in a kind of global um, context, right? Um, what is the significance of this story for global intellectual history? Um, and so we both met uh, at the uh, Free University of Berlin Center of Global History, of, in which there is a graduate program in global intellectual history. So I, I've very, very much been thinking about uh, these issues, framing the book uh, in a way that deals sufficiently uh, with the local context, but also bringing this context out of, um, out of Brazil and into the world. And on that point, I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how you were thinking about your your own method as you know someone writing intellectual history, <clears throat> thinking about what it might mean to write global or, or transnational intellectual history. Um, and also, you know, this might be a completely separate question, but the real fact that your book really excitingly cuts across a number of subfields as well. Um, which is not just a matter of kind of where a book might be shelved, but also all of these fields have their own historiographies and their own questions. You know, just to name a few in your book, you've got diplomatic history, political history, the history of ideas. Um, in that kind of sorting question, but also methodological question, um, how did you go about, yeah, thinking through what kind of intellectual history this is? So, so honestly, I, you know, I sought to tell a story of a group of intellectuals um, and uh, the world in which they operated, uh, a world which helped to form them and their ideas. And so this led me down uh, a number of different paths. Uh, so the diplomatic aspect of this is in some ways infrastructural, but at other times uh, is the content of what I'm doing. So state actors were fundamental uh, in making uh, French culture so present in Brazil and in Latin America, and this is the kind of conditions of possibility for the story. Um, some of the negotiations for making these professorships uh, French rather than uh, of another nationality uh, happened because of uh, these um, this initiative of the French state. 
Um, but beyond this, the book interrogates what it means to be a kind of Latin Americanist in France and elsewhere, as well as for Brazilians, what it means to be kind of the privileged interlocutors uh, with uh, certain uh, movements, whether they be literary or, or social scientific from elsewhere. Uh, I think that we're all uh, diplomats uh, in some way, shape or form of uh, our own scholarship, uh, whether or not we recognize it. Uh, and this is particularly important when looking at the circulation, international circulation of, of ideas and people. Um, in terms of political history, the, the University of Sao Paulo uh, was a product of this. Um, and so uh, I mentioned Vargas earlier. Uh, Sao Paulo uh, originally, uh, initially supports Getulio Vargas in 1930. Uh, uh, Vargas overthrows uh, Brazil's first republic with the promise of a kind of reformist uh, government, uh, and but ultimately stays in power. And so the very uh, Paulistas from the people from Sao Paulo who had supported him come to resist him in the name of the return of the constitution. And so between 1932 and 1934, uh, there's a constitutionalist revolution or even civil war between Sao Paulo and, and the rest of, of Brazil. Uh, and this is um, the, the backdrop for the founding of the University of Sao Paulo in 1934. Uh, the elites of Sao Paulo said, well, we can't win politically, we can't win uh, at the ballot box, but maybe if we can create um, kind of technocrats to uh influence politics in other ways uh that we 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 will have this uh, and so it's a it's a question of whether or not this happens to take place uh but uh it is the backdrop for for this story again the preconditions um but it also is uh part of this history of ideas um, and so I think we need to understand this political context, not just in a kind of zeitgeist sense of this is what was happening and then there were ideas, but but because they're related. And so there's a whole discussion in the book, uh, and again, it goes to this colonial project of banderismo, of the banderanches. So these are the kind of uh, settlers. Uh, so, so Sao Paulo is the first, um, well, not the first, but it likes to think of itself as the first interior uh, state of Brazil, um, where uh, the kind of push to the West, uh, which is ongoing today, uh, soy, cattle, et cetera, in, in center West Brazil, this starts in Sao Paulo, um, but it also goes back to the colonial period when uh, the banderas from Sao Paulo pushed Brazil's border west, the Port Portugal's border west, into what was then uh, Spanish-controlled lands. Uh, and so part of this idea of kind of Sao Paulo's modernity, Sao Paulo's dynamic nature, Sao Paulo's even, you know, entrepreneurial um, spirit uh, is tied to developments, um, not just in popular culture, but in the social sciences during this period. Um, and so um, I think uh, this is important to remember this this context, political and cultural context of the university, um, as we witness in, in the US uh, right now, another round of culture wars, um, you know, the humanities and the social sciences are and always were politically charged, subject to political choices about funding, etc. Uh, and this is a, a case in point of that. Um, and in terms of uh, the history of ideas, 
Some of the most prominent French social scientists of the 20th century spent their formative years in Brazil. So it was essential for me to tell the story of how Brazil and Brazilians figured in the development of, of these ideas. Because your book cuts across a number of different subfields, um, the history of ideas, the history of science, Latin American history, transatlantic history, French history, um, how do you hope we might teach this book? I hope that the historians of t science take up uh, this book and, and some of its ideas, because I do see, unfortunately, uh, a kind of divide between historians of social science and historians of science. And there are reasons for that, but I think that we've maybe reached a point where we can overcome this divide. So I would love for it to appear in, in, in classes such as that. Um, but probably uh, the the kind of courses where this book would fit uh, most directly would be Latin American focused courses. Uh, this can be read as a kind of monograph an intellectual history an intellectual and cultural history of Brazil. Um, for courses in kind of intellectual in European intellectual and uh, social uh, theory. Um, I, I think that maybe not reading the entirety of the book, but assigning parts of it in conjunction with some of the kind of great texts uh, that are present in it might be interesting. So, for example, if you're going to end up teaching uh, Brodel's The Mediterranean or Levi-Strauss on structuralism or these kind of things, having uh, this as a, as a kind of secondary reading uh, for it, uh, as well as um, some suggestions for Brazilian texts that we might include um, in these kind of broader methodology courses. And so this is um, something that I hope happens uh, not only in history, but also in allied disciplines, anthropology, sociology, et cetera, uh, particularly as people start to uh, turn towards uh, the history of the social sciences, which is which is in continuing uh, in, to happen and increasingly happening. There's actually a journal uh, to which I'm going to contribute uh, that's launching next year, History of Social Science. So I think that this is a, a kind of exciting new subfield uh, and one that I hope, um, you know, the this book finds space in, but also um, not only within the field, but as a tool in the classroom for thinking about uh, theoretical approaches to settler colonialism, race, transatlantic trade, social structure, any number of, of questions that are raised in the book. And before we close, I wanted to ask you um, to pick up on some things that you, you've been talking about during this conversation, um, you know, as they relate to how and why universities look the way they do, or um, the stories that people have been telling about um, social change in, in their lifetime as, as they appear in your book. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the kind of political stakes of the story that you're telling and um, maybe how they figured in in the research process and also in the finished product? Because obviously this, this is a story about people thinking hard about politics and political change, but it also, I think, has implications for how we approach the question. Uh, yeah, great. Uh, big question to, to end with here. Um, I'd say that it, it kind of makes me think back to the earlier question you raised of uh, social scientists and, and practice, uh, as well as practice for historians and literary scholars, etc. 
so and and this um significance of of our moment in terms of a kind of reckoning with uh and rethinking of canons um, and I think what we need to do is to genuinely and substantively include places from Latin America uh, and elsewhere in the global South uh, for our work as scholars. Um, and so there, there's a lot of exciting work going on uh, in uh, this kind of light. Um, but one of the things that this book does, I think that's different, um, is to not do so in a way, not, you know, provide a, a completely alternative uh, decolonial canon, which is also a very important thing to do, uh, but also to think about um, alterity in a, in a different way, alterity in a kind of connected way, um, and thinking about um, different kinds of social scientific traditions, Brazil, uh, South Asia, elsewhere, um, that are very much partners uh, to um, developments elsewhere, right? Partners in a quest for human emancipation and arriving at a better understanding of the world around us. Uh, and so I think in order, at a basic level, in order to do this, what we need to do uh, is learn foreign languages, engage with sources, uh, particularly uh, for those in the global north, uh, to kind of make efforts to read scholars from elsewhere, include them in our work and, and create the conditions of possibility for non-imperial forms of kind of knowledge transfer. Um, and so I think some of the most exciting thinking going on in the world right now is happening outside of the universities that tend to dominate the global uh, social scientific landscape. Uh, and this is despite the fact that they have limited resources, uh, they might be distant from the English language and the kind of powerful publishing platforms that it has, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the, the University of Sao Paulo was and is uh, an exciting place in this um, way. Uh, there are many others that I'm sure you and those listening to are, are familiar with. And I, and I think just to, to treat these places, these spaces, these intellectuals with as much seriousness uh, as we do uh, those in positions of, of power and privilege.